0: Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I'm joined here with my best friend Kevin.
1: Time slowed as the pale sun rose higher. Suddenly an English cry went up and their banners began to move. This would be the hour. The French lines launched themselves across the land they had assembled to defend. Then the air shifted with a thrum and all at once the sky was dark. Razor-tipped arrows unleashed in a numberless, roiling storm plunged through the breastplates and visors, muscle and bone. Violent death was falling from the clouds, and in response spurs kicked screaming horses to charge down the archers from whose bows this slaughter flew. They found only death of a different kind, impaling themselves on the sharpened stakes that they saw too late, bristled from the ground on which the archers stood or wheeling in panic and stumbling under the pounding hooves of those who pressed behind. Dead and living fell together, crushed into suffocating earth, one on top of another, in heaped piles from which none would rise. For more than two hours, French soldiers labored onward, heavy feet struggling and sucking mud or tangled in the twisted limbs of the fallen. And all the while, English blades hacked and stabbed and gouged. That's from the book Joan of Arc by... Helen Castor, and if you want to read that book. See, I
0: was about to say, like, you got really good at writing these. Yeah,
1: and if you want to read that book, it'll be in the show notes, and it's one of my main sources for our story today on Joan of Arc. And that rather epic passage tells of the French defeat at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. And it's important to start here with a story that takes place about 15 years later. Because this was in the back of the minds of the French after, for the second time, their entire nobility is annihilated. To put this in proper context, for the next 15 years, they don't really have a single true noble leading their army because they're all gone. They're either dead or captured by the English. And there's not a lot a kingdom is going to do that can be aggressive or successful in warfare when an entire leadership is annihilated in one battle. Now, one man who wasn't at this battle was John the Fearless of Burgundy. He was there because he was asked not to be there, even though he sent his younger brothers, he sent a small force, and he was, in general, in support of the French, supported by the Armagnac Party, the true French, as they called themselves. But he wasn't there. And the Armagnac Party was led by Louis, Duke of Orleans, the son of our Duke Louis from the murder of Duke Louis episode.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I recognize this person. Yes.
1: this This is the son that's a famous poet, and he would find himself captured and imprisoned in England for most of his adult life.
0: It's good poetry fodder right there.
1: Basically, he sat in a dungeon, treated fairly well, but in a, let's say, a fancy dungeon, and wrote poetry. That's why it's a famous poet, not a famous medieval warrior. Philip, or sorry, John of Burgundy is ascendant after this defeat, because even though the English win, they aren't able to capitalize on this battle. In fact, Henry V, the winner of this battle, has to return back to England where he gets a big triumph, he's in charge, he basically allows the the battle to be a nice little punctuation to his campaign, which had almost ended in defeat. The English were out of food and were running away when they turned around and fought and annihilated the French. It's one of these surprising battles in history that has a huge consequence. John Burgundy is still fighting with the Armagnacs over control, even after this massive defeat with Bernard, Count of Armagnac, one of the few nobles who didn't fight in that battle himself. So the two main leaders of the Civil War are still alive, as well as all of the... Um,
0: Meanwhile, the English are just like partying up back at pretty home. Pretty much. Really resting on their laurels up there.
1: Isn't this the same basic thing we noticed back in the Black Princess episode, where the English just keep annihilating the French and then partying about it.
0: Yeah. How is it that the English are constantly winning and yet never win?
1: Partly it's because they are outnumbered very badly in all mm. of these battles, and they're, they're the, uh, the attackers, and it, this is a very defensive time in history. So they have to regroup, refund, re-recruit, and then push the next season. And by the time that happens, usually the French have managed to, to throw a couple more peasants into the mix,
0: They've managed to like randomly go like, hey, you, you're a nobility now.
1: Kind of, yeah. And you're going to see a little bit of that in this episode, because there's a lot of random people that show up on the French side because they had to.
0: Right. They were like, we don't have a Duke of Orleans anymore. It used to be Louis. Homie got stabbed. His son's a poet, so he's not in charge. And he's because, in England. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah, his son's a poet and also and also imprisoned. Because if he was just a poet and in charge, he would probably end up being a dictator if history tells us anything about <laughs> yeah. poets in charge of governments.
1: That is true. <laughs> so for the period after Agincourt, there's a bit of a lull as everyone's trying to regather themselves. And the 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 thing that's most depressing for the French is Charles VI is still their king. That is
0: depressing.
1: Charles VI is still insane, and he's been king for a very long time. He's now in his, like, 30th year of kingship. And there's the same governmental problems when the king cannot actively and rightfully rule. There's That's still two parties in France are trying to pull apart, and it's the same basic conflict that caused the assassination of Duke Louis, just with a slightly different figurehead on the, the Orléans side. Burgundy is feeling, though, I mean fearless and he's feeling in what charge. Was his nickname? John the Fearless. There you That's go. his name. It's a great. It's on brand for him. It is. And he's feeling in charge at this point because he has control of Charles's two oldest sons. Charles only has three sons, and most of his children die young, and he's got these three sons. And Burgundy has married people on his side, two women on his side to uh, the two Dolphins. The dolphin is the male heir. Um, and then if the male heir dies, the next man in line becomes the new dolphin. means dolphin, but it's the name of an area in uh, France that was given to the heir to the throne, so it became a title.
0: It's like the on-deck box.
1: Pretty much, yeah. And you know, okay. there's, there's there's a set line of succession. Unfortunately for Burgundy, those two men die. Those two older sons of the Mad King Charles die young about 18 years old each, about a year or two apart from each other. And what's the man who's left is another man named Charles. And this Charles, who is now Dauphine, he isn't in Burgundy's control. In fact, he is being raised almost by kidnapping by a woman named Yolande, who is married to a scion of the Armagnac party. She's married to the Duke of Anjou, who had been fighting against the Burgundians for quite a while now. What she had seen, this woman Yolande, who will show up in our story much more, and she's extremely important, one of those women who's in the background of history and is probably doing more than almost all of the men combined to make things happen.
0: She's like the footnote of the footnote She's definitely the
1: footnote of the footnote, but she shows up enough in the histor- historical accounts that you can, if a woman shows up this often at this time in history, they're doing something important. And she is vastly wealthy on her own. She is from, <laughs> it's sad that I have to say that. but
0: It says so much that you're like, look, trust me, if we know a woman's name from history, that means she did so much.
1: Yep. Ugh, it's horrible. <laughs> She's vastly wealthy on her own. She has a lot of power within her own right. So she has the legal claim to where she is, as well as through her husband, who... um is a prince of the blood, so he's from the royal line. And she takes Charles, the young Dauphine, even before he's the Dauphine, she takes him out of the royal court because a lot of those, there was a lot of death and bad things happening. I don't know how else to describe it. And there's just this general feeling that it's unlikely that some of these children were dying of natural causes, including the first two Dauphines. And she kind of just manages to marry one of her family members to that Dolphin. They're like 12 years old when they get engaged. And as a result, she kind of just takes him out. She takes him away. And when there's this constant back-and-forth battle between the two parties, when Charles becomes the Dolphine, his life is in danger. And he, the Burgundians go to capture him. They steal Charles out of Paris in his bedclothes the night, a little while after he becomes the Dolphin and they pull him away to the south of France. And he's never crowned king, because he's not king. His father is still king. His father, who is much older than him, and is still very mentally unstable. What happens next is the most important part to give you the context of this story. Bernard, a Count of Armagnac, is murdered while trying to defend Paris at the same time that Charles is sent out. So the main leader of the Armagnac party, remember the rest of the nobility has already been killed at Agincourt, he's now killed. He's like brutally murdered. The Duke of Burgundy, he's trying to gain the same things he had in the the last episode we had. He wants as much power as possible. He wants to basically take the wealth of the French crown to himself personally because he is technically a French prince. But his interests are much more in Flanders, in um, the east of France, in his own territory, some of which aren't even part of France. Stupid, sexy Flanders. Exactly. I knew you were gonna say something about that. Of course. He is having to play this double game because remember, the English are still attacking. The English are slowly encroaching and taking fortress after fortress, castle after castle, moving down from the north as he is, as they're still battling over Paris.
0: Meanwhile, the French are still killing what few nobility they have left.
1: Exactly. <laughs> quality, quality leadership right here. John and Charles meet to try to stop the conflict when Charles is only about 14, 15 years old, at the very beginning of his Dolphinship, I guess. That's not a word, but it is now. And the supporters of Charles, the younger, assassinate John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, in direct retaliation for his assassination of Duke Louis. It takes a long time, but they basically um, trick him into a diplomatic meeting and ambush him on a bridge and kill him in the exact same way. They hack him to death.
0: Wow. Uh, Is there any important information about hats?
1: Unfortunately, no. Boom. Callback.
0: That joke is going to make a lot more sense if you're listening to this in the Megasode. But if this is a standalone, you might have to think about it for a second.
1: Or go listen to the previous episode. John the Fearless is succeeded by his son, Philip, who will become Philip the Bold of Burgundy. Get your own thing, man. He's the namesake of his grandfather who had kind of started these problems in the first place. And he is now fairly on the side of the English because he sees his future as in his own kingdoms. And if he supports the English and the English are trying to become the kings of France, perhaps that can get him his independence and maybe even his own kingdom or his own grand dukeship or something important. Yeah, that sounds like it's something the
0: English are going to want to give you.
1: And at this point, the queen of France has already been exiled, so she has no control, and she is kidnapped by right after this by Philip the Bold the English managed to find their way pretty much to Paris. What happens next is called the Treaty of uh, Troyes or Troyes. I don't know how to pronounce the word. And it's the disinheriting of the Delphine Charles by his mother and his cousin and uncle. They say that when Charles V, the Mad King, dies, he will not be succeeded by his actual son, Charles, the, eventually the sixth, he'll be succeeded by Henry the fifth, And there's a way that this works, because Henry V is married to the only surviving daughter of Charles, the Mad King, Catherine. Hmm. She is Henry's wife, and she's actually healthy because she got kicked out of France as early as possible in this time period. And so she is— Gosh,
0: France can't get their crap together it's, right now. It's pretty
1: bad for France right now. And so she's married to Henry V, and she's pregnant. And at this treaty, right around the same time, she gives birth to a boy. Uh Aha. Henry VI. High-value
0: boy right there.
1: And he's incredibly important, but he'll prove to be an only child. Because in the next year of campaigning, Henry V dies of dysentery. Six weeks later, Charles the Mad King dies as well. And now think about who's in charge by title. You have a disinherited dauphin who's about sixteen years old or so. He's a, he's like a teenager, right? And you have a nine-month-old baby.
0: I mean, given that it's France, I'm going. My money's on the baby.
1: <laughs> the nine-month-old baby is in England, and
0: I'm definitely putting my money on the baby there because that seems like a bad choice.
1: <laughs> and Charles himself, the dauphin, is known as the King of Bourges, like this root of bourgeois. Oh. It's a little city south of the Loire Loire River. I hate pronouncing French words. It's south of the Ho- Loire River. I'm going to call it France. that so I can pronounce it right, which is the main river that divides northern and southern France. It's a very large river, and it simply cuts the kingdom north-south in two. Okay. And Charles controls all the land to the south, and the English and Burgundian alliance, as it mostly is, though it's not of like a truly set-in-stone alliance. It's mostly a, they continually have the same interests. They control the north. The French, the, the, remember, the Burgundians consider themselves the true French. Right. And at this point, there's two kings of France. Neither one is crowned because there's a civil war. And all kings are crowned at the city of Rheims. Uh, Rheims. I don't think you pronounce the S. R-E-I-M-S. Rem. Okay.
0: So is that just a heavily contested city right now?
1: Actually, it's in the middle of Burgundian lands, and it's fairly peaceful.
0: So why don't they just crown somebody? I feel like when there's a civil war going on, it's not that no one gets crowned. I feel like during a civil war, it's everyone gets crowned. And then you argue over who crowned better. Henry's
1: too young. You have to be an adult. Oh, okay. That's the simple thing. With all of that background, there is then another prolonged period of That slow grinding warfare where, as one person said it, one day the English would take two fortresses in the morning and that afternoon the French would take a fortress back. And it would just be this constant push and pull along that river, the Loire River, as the two sides just grinded each other away. There is constant, incessant village burning and mercenaries going around. There's entire sections of France that are controlled. Let's got a little valley. We'll have a bunch of fortresses, and that'll be controlled by a mercenary. And he's vaguely on a side, but he's basically just controlling his own lands. And it, it's true chaos.
0: Meanwhile, the English having a party.
1: The English are <laughs> definitely in the ascendance right, right, right now. They're totally in charge. And... Out of this, in a place called the Duchy of Bar, Joan of Arc is born. So to give you an idea of just how complicated the Middle Ages can be in terms of political entities. And definitely a new challenge is approaching, because she is not a footnote of history by any means. So it kind of breaks our premise. Right.
0: I was going to say, this feels a little off-brand for us.
1: But you just cannot tell the story of the Hundred Years' War without her. It's just a bizarre story, but she's in this place called the Duchy of Bar, which is controlled by the Armagnac side. But if you go look at Duchy of Bar on the map, it's in what's called Lorraine, modern Lorraine, and that's that part at the border of France and Germany and Belgium, and right in between all of them. It's where they fought world wars. I was gonna say, this this seems
0: like a city that. Kind of gets screwed
1: in terms of yeah. wartime geography. <laughs> and it's just this little region, and it's surrounded by the Burgundians, like completely surrounded by the Burgundians, but it is on the other side because it's controlled by the other side. So all the people there kind of have to support their overlord. And that's where she grows up. So she is supporting the Armagnac party, which for now on I'm going to call the French party. Okay. And she lives in this village, and her father's fairly wealthy, um, and he— She has a pretty good upbringing, but they have to flee their village at one time early on because a bunch of people show up and attack them because they're supporting the wrong side. She's isolated, yet she starts to hear voices when she's a teenager, like a 13-year-old girl, and she starts to hear voices when she's out in the fields, and they tell her that she needs to go tell the king that God wants him to kick the English out and take back France for the French, and that she, Joan, will lead the army to do it. There are a lot of ways that this can be interpreted as insanity. And I don't want to take her voices as a um, medical diagnosis. They are something that if you read any account of Joan of Arc, you kind of have to ignore whether the voices were real or not, because they were real to her and they had a real impact. And they were very specific and consistent. But these voices were telling her repeatedly throughout her teenage years that she needed to get to the Dauphine Charles. She's in this isolated chunk in this village called Dom Ramy in the Duchy of Bar. How is she even supposed to do that as a young peasant girl? Well, she tries to tell people about this, and pretty much everybody scoffs at her within her own village. And now's a good time to mention the fact that the best account, if you want a, like, almost a, like a story, like a narrative, a fictional story about her that's actually based in historical accuracy, is Mark Twain. The famous Mark Twain wrote a very long and detailed book on this.
0: There are so many weird things in history where you go, like, if you want a bizarrely good reference for something completely unrelated to Mark Twain, you should check out Mark Twain. I feel like he was very prolific in things that you don't expect him to be prolific
1: in. He did, but this one is exceptional even for him. He was obsessed with Joan of Arc. How did this peasant girl, that we haven't even talked about what she did yet, but how does this peasant girl from this isolated chunk of France...
0: Surrounded by unfriendly territory that would, I, I imagine somewhat difficult to traverse.
1: Uh, very much so, yeah. He was obsessed with her as this like perfect person in history. And he writes this book called Joan of Arc and he wrote it anonymously and he wrote it in – it was released through the newspapers. That's how a lot of books were published back then, like chapter upon chapter. And the chapters are really short. And it's telling Joan of Arc's story with Mark Twain's ability to write. So it's really well written. Um, But he he takes some artistic license. But all the facts and the times and the chronology is all based on actual sources written in French and Latin that he himself personally read – over a decade. He rewrote the story six separate times. And he gives you this great background into her life in Dom Remis as a girl who was just perfect. In reality, Joan seems pretty amazing, but he writes about her as if she is some sort of superhuman, perfect human being. And oh my gosh, does it get annoying. <laughs> because when there's a faultless person in history their story gets dull. Yeah, this is why no one likes Superman. Exactly. Exactly. But if you want a story that it's written in, you know, 1900s, it's got that kind of writing to it, which can get a little tedious after a while, I would recommend reading Mark Twain's. And we'll also put it in the show notes. If you want the more just raw historical account, which completely corroborates Twain's just with more of a history, read Joan of Arc by Helen Castor. So yep. those are the two main books. If you want the
0: narrative, get Joan of Arc. If you want the story, get Joan, get Joan of, Joan of Arc.
1: Arc. I know. A plus. And there's like another ten books about this. But these are All the ones that Joan I, of Arc. Um that were recommended the highest. We'll include the I, the uh, ISBN numbers. Yeah. <laughs> that way you can get the right one. So back to the narrative. What does Joan do? Well, Joan being, you know, yelled at from within her own head by who who she rep uh she represents these voices and she actually physically sees them as the Archangel Michael, Saint Catherine, Saint Margaret. These are famous saints um, who speak French to her. And they tell her, go to the local fortress. There's always a garrison that is guarding literally every tiny little stretch of land. I mean, these things are probably a day's walk from each other.
0: They're like the 7 Elevens kind of. of of French military.
1: <laughs> it's it's hard to overtell just how defensive this place was every single hill had a castle on it and every single hill garrisoned a small set of villages and there would be like 50 guys in that castle that defended it and it would take giant armies weeks to take out these towers so she goes to the closest one where a man named robert of bodricourt is the garrison commander he's a captain and he she tells him what her voice has told her and the one thing that everyone is really amazed by is how emphatic she is, how much she truly believes what she is saying. And it, they try to make fun of her. They try to respond sarcastically, and they turn her away initially, but she comes back, and she comes back with you know some people from her village in support. Like, who would actually want to bring her there? That's right. the level of support she's getting right now. And how old is she at this point? Thirteen still? Uh sixteen. Oh, okay. So it's a few years later. So she's sixteen and she's apparently um how and how old is um Charles? Charles the King Charles. Um I think he's is late twenties. Not not, well, not not yet King, King Charles. Spoilers. Let's <laughs> just read a history book. <laughs> read a book. You can't spoil history. Yes, yeah, actually you can. We yes, tell you narratives can. like we can
0: You can spoil history in a lot of different ways. Yeah.
1: I've always thought of history as a narrative like that, where you can root for somebody, even though you know it's going to happen, but it's all about the way it happens. I've never minded, minded movies being spoiled for myself, so I guess that's one of the reasons I like history. Yeah. Um, so she's 16, he's in his 20s. 20s or early 30s. He's not an old man. He's still pretty youthful, but he okay. is a famously... But they're not like both 16. This isn't about to be like Twilight. No, it's not. No, it's not. He's, uh, he's famous. He's married, for one, and he's famously... Um, that doesn't really stop French kings, though. I was gonna, oh, yeah.
0: Let's, that doesn't stop the French in general, as no, far as I can tell. No,
1: definitely not. Um, uh, but he is doing nothing right now. Basically, he's got a, a wide variety of fortresses that are just holding out, which we'll get to. But let's continue the story here. <laughs> I just, I, I,
0: I got caught up in my head just now thinking about um, throwback to our very first series William Walker's Time in France. And like the way he wrote about the French, uh, like when he came back home, which was like they, all the men and all the women, they just, they're married, but they but they have affairs and everyone's fine with it. And it's just, it's like the most pearl clutching thing in the world. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but he's married. Wait, that doesn't stop French kings. Wait, that doesn't stop the French. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is not that kind of story though. Right. One thing we'll, we'll see soon is one of the reasons that Mark Twain writes about her and the way he does is she is... Of very focused, and she's very uh, chaste. Chaste. It's chastity. She has lots of chastity. I think the word right. pronounced chaste. Right. A lot of these words I only see written. I never hear people speak.
0: The only reason it is chaste. The only reason I didn't respond was because I was trying to come up with a joke about her being chased by people. Mm. But I just couldn't. I couldn't bridge that quick
1: enough. Joan returns to this garrison, and she's pretty much alone. She's got a male escort. The, the, like relatives brought her there because she can't just travel on her own. Because she's chaste. Because she's chaste. And they basically say, all right, if, you, if you're going to be this person who is going to save France and you're going to go meet the king who is over 100 miles away through enemy territory, give us a prophecy. Prove it. If God is sending you, prove it. And she says, basically, tomorrow the French are going to be defeated and they're going to be defeated in a very bad defeat. The next day, the news arrives and they were defeated at the Battle of the Herrings. Now the Battle of the Herrings brings us to what Jonah's most famous for. The city of Orleans.
0: Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. So we're 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 accepting the the voices as a semi-given kind of thing, just for the purposes of the narrative. Uh, is that there, there's corroboration that she did successfully predict that? Yeah, or, she did that. Oh, so she like legit that's not like like uh like the lore that gets wrapped up in history sometimes. Is this is It history. might, it it's, might it's be. It's
1: hard to separate the two, but okay. it's not like it. This is the way it is told in every single story. It's the same exact. The most thing.
0: skeptical versions of this story still include stuff like this. It's
1: it's all primary sources. This is crazy. The, the, the actual people at the time yeah. all said this,
0: e, and even the ones. So she actually is like. The French are going to lose tomorrow, and then the next day,
1: they find out the French have lost. The argument's not that her voices are saying this, because even the English would say, yeah, her voices told her that. The argument is whether the voices are coming from the devil or coming from God. That's what it becomes later on. Oh, interesting. So it's it's kind of a given. So when I say it's a given, we kind of got to get over our modern understanding and just roll. Right, well, I
0: say a given through the modern context. Like, when we look back on this, we can argue whether or not the voices were real, not whether they were God or the devil. I was more so going like, through a modern context, do we accept that she did successfully predict things like this? As far as we can tell, yes. Wow. And to be perfectly honest, it's a better story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a much better story. (laughs) And this Battle of the Herrings, which is named after the fish, um, was set at the beginning of the Siege of Orléans. So to give you an idea, we'd already talked about the fact that France is divided north-south by this big river, the Loire River. And Orléans is the northernmost point on that river. It's a city that garrisons the, the point where north and southern France are divided. And it is controlled by the French. And the English are sieging it. And they start the siege in October of 1428. And this, and Joan is at Baudricourt at the beginning of 1429. So the siege has been going on for a little bit. And the way that the English ensieged that town is, Orleans is on the north bank of the river. So it's on the English side. And it's, a, it's surrounded by a big castle. It's got lots of, you know, fortresses, like t- turrets and big thick walls. And then there's a little island in the lore, which has a fortress on it and a bridge connecting that. And then on the south side, there's another double fortress. One is a fortified monastery and one is a big, big fortress. So it's like fortress upon fortress with this bridge head on an island in the middle of the river. And the first thing the French did is they destroyed the bridge they blew up their own bridge and they isolated the city of orleans so you can only get there by crossing the river at on either east or west of the city you got to go around and come at it from the north well the, the the english decide to siege it from the south and in the way that sieges work if this is an important enough siege is the siegers are going to build their own fortresses to surround your fortress this is God, they love their fortresses so much. Well, they have such an advantage. Yeah, how do you take out a fortress? You, how do you get through as a human being a 10-foot
0: th- thick stone wall? It's just comical. It's like, oh, they have a fortress. What do we do to that? Let's build our own fortresses right next to their fortress
1: and outfortress them. Well, there's, I believe, seven English fortresses. And most of them are on the west side. The, the river kind of does a little bend by Orleans. It's
0: so many fortresses. And the, it's on the west
1: side. and there's just, just invent in a, plains already, France. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they're there, and they're really well garrisoned and defended and well supplied. And the English haven't, I mean, their supply routes are feeding them easily. And there's one isolated fortress on the east, which um, helps to block any supplies that are going around the siege. Because remember, the thing about the French, they're on the south of the Southern siege. So they go all the way around from the east, up above, through this forest that is a very thick forest to the north of um, Orleans. And the forest is surrounded by British patrols, which will pick off anything small. So if they're going to get food to Orleans, they have to have these, like, escorted supply trains. A so, mobile fortress, if you will. Pretty much. <laughs> and so that's why this is called the Battle of the Herrings is because um, they have a big... It's during Lent and they're all eating fish and there's a bunch of fish in this supply train and they get ambushed, the French get ambushed and they get annihilated. And so though it doesn't cut the siege off entirely, doesn't really change the what's going on, this was a big deal because the city is now even more hungry. It's even more cut off and the main relief force has been squashed. And so when Jones says that's going to happen, pretty much everybody... At that garrison she's in, it's like, all right, well, she seems to truly be coming from God. Let's give her a a chance. She manages, with her insistence even before that, to recruit a couple of knights who are, again, kind of isolated from the main warfare, probably been just fighting off mercenaries for the last 10 years, to agree with her and say, all right, we think you are from God. Robert of Baudricorce gives her a group, and they trek through Burgundian lands and an important note here is they put her in women's clothing on their own advice. She doesn't choose this. They say, uh, sorry, they put her in men's clothing on mm, their own, okay. on their own um, advice. They say, hey, why don't you put on some armor, cut your hair short like men did. They would cut their hair kind of like a bowl cut at this time. And we just don't want you to be obvious. And we want you so that you, people don't try to like grab you And if we fight somebody. Right. This would later be very, very important. And she stays in men's clothes for the rest of this, for the rest of the story. She's in armor and pants and that kind of thing, which at these, this time, people are following the, the sumptuary laws where you can only wear the clothing of not only your your gender, but also your like your profession station. and yeah. your station. And you couldn't wear a monk's clothes, as we learned in the Duke Louis episode, unless you were a monk. And that was actually used as a disguise against the law. And that follows the you know the Bible, Deuteronomy. says you can't do those things. They managed to find their way through the Burgundian lands. Um, and Mark Twain goes into a lot more detail, and he, he makes it all of up. Of course he does. He makes it all up. But it's one of those things where he's... It's historical fiction, but it's the, what actually happened. How, you know, did the people involved in his stories actually do those events? Was it quite as harrowing? Did they get attacked at that village? No. But he makes it really harrowing. It's really interesting. When Joan... When the message of Joan and her prophecies and her vision arrives at the king, who's at a castle called Chinol, people are kind of excited because the French have been losing for a very long time. They've been doing a lot of retreating. They are decapitated militarily, and they want something to raise their morale the French party is sick of losing, they're sick of retreating, and they're starting to get a pretty bad reputation even within their own side. Mark Twain goes into a lot of detail on that. He makes he just trashes the French like 800 times in the book. But, you know, Helen Castro says the same thing. They needed something. Um, this is where Yolande of Aragon, um, she's actually Yolande of Anjou at this point, um, she sees these kinds of, Prophets and prophetesses like Joan. And she had actually supported numerous other holy women who had visions for the success of France before this. And she grabs on to Joan's and she starts to actively make a place for her to get an audience with the king. Now, the king at this point had been very indecisive. He had been just hanging out with a relatively empty treasury, not really fighting wars. He never really led his own army in the field or anything he's this really passive guy he's crippled by indecision and his various um like court advisors are just these you know byzantine people they're always trying to remove each other from their place of precedence they're fighting over who gets to sit on what stool that kind of stuff right and He's just trying to look for an opportunity to make himself the real king, but knowing that he's probably going to have to leave the country into exile if the English win the Siege of Orleans. Because if they win that siege, he's doomed. And in fact, most of the major fighting hadn't been done by the French for the last decade. It had been done by Scottish mercenaries, who, the last of which, were annihilated at the Battle of Herrings. So all their main mercenary army that had won them some victories, they were all gone too.
0: You gotta love how on brand the Scots are. Like, if there's some English that could be killed, the Scots are there.
1: And it's kind of sad that that's pretty much all they were there for.
0: Yeah, they were like, they were like, "You find me a guy who needs some English killed."
1: I got you. A few of them were made into French nobility, and they were all then killed. And then the French <laughs> were just like, "All right, we'll make them French." <laughs> the moment again.
0: they became French, they got murdered.
1: Uh, and that battle of the herrings, and a couple oh, of battles it's before. So it. funny. So behind the scenes, I can to me i envision yolan really going to the king and saying hey you know that i i feel that god is going to save us let's let's listen to this woman cuz she has apparently she is the real deal she has been correct before she has this insistence everyone is saying that her character is faultless and she truly believes this
0: mark twain freaking loves her you should hear her out exactly also, and this is the most Manic Pixie Dream Girl story I've ever heard. It, the King is this kind of like simpering, like indecisive, oh, woe is me kind of thing. And all of a sudden, like a uh, short haircut armor girl comes in and is like, decisions are going to be made now.
1: If that's something that makes sense to you, because it doesn't make sense to me. Do you not know what a Manic Pixie Dream Girl
0: is? A little bit. Watch 500 Days of Summer. Sure. Don't read a book. <laughs>
1: Don't read a book. <laughs> I I mostly read the books. Um <laughs> I love how I like I don't derailing. know how many times we actually include these long pauses where Mark obliterates my
0: We very rarely leave the long pause in. We're gonna leave that long pause in <laughs> just to really send home a point that like I cut a lot of long pauses out, mostly as a result of me derailing the conversation in a really traumatic way.
1: Yes, I am truly traumatized. <sighs> so When Joan arrives at the court, she is given audience to the king. And of course, in like typical medieval story, they put a different person than the king at the king's throne. And the king is sitting in normal, noble wear, multiple seats down in the audience, basically.
0: Once again, this has all of the like trappings of like a Manic Pixie Dream Girl or like even like a rom-com at this point where the real king is like sitting in the corner to be like, what's she really
1: like? Now, this is one of those things where, you know, we really don't know if this happened because this is, n- this is a trope. I mean, this is downright common. I, I can just picture a couple others in you know, Mesopotamian history and things where people do these things, you know, where like the- someone is able to, whether by their wits or by their um, divine nature, identify a, a trick in this way as proof that they are truly the right person for this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the first time it happens oh, and so it's so a trope he, afterwards. So what
0: he's doing is is saying if she will be able to identify yeah. by divine. Oh, interesting. So it's purposeful. Yeah. Well, I assumed it was— They are constantly I assumed it was challenging like, her. I assumed it was kind of just to
1: avoid the king getting murdered. <laughs> No, no, they don't fear she's murdering him. They know no, that no, she's on the I don't, I don't necessarily
0: even mean her. I mean,
1: like, just Oh, general. like a defense mechanism for the king. Yeah, I get what you yeah, mean. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: But, oh, this is way more interesting, though, that they're doing this to see, like, if she doesn't realize that she's not talking to the real king,
1: they'll be like, aha, doesn't hear from God. Exactly. Well, she says immediately, the voices tell her which person's the king. And she looks at that guy and goes, you're not the king. She just turns to the king and says, you're the king. It's a little bit more dramatic than that, but it's pretty much he just picks the king out instantly. And the king is amazed. And uh, just to
0: save us some time really quick, should I ask for the like veracity of every single one of these events, or should we just assume that they are by and large considered to be first account accurate?
1: These events are the ones are a little bit more sketchy. Okay. Okay. The next ones are Because like the
0: prediction stuff is crazy, but the fact yeah. that everyone just goes, No, it, it, we're pretty sure it happened is nuts. If this is also one that I'm going like, okay, I'm on Team Voices
1: now. Be on Team Voices. It just makes the story more interesting. And there's really no reason to disbelieve that she heard voices, but still was able to do a lot of these things.
0: It'd be really fun just to like confuse people and have this episode just titled hashtag Team Voices.
1: (laughs) I'm going to veto that one. Ah, fine. The king calls her up to talk to him. And what she does basically is she... Again, through the the wisdom of her voices, tells him some of his deep seated fears—the fear that he won't he wasn't a legitimate king because he's losing so badly. You know, the way that medieval people thought was of this thing called the wheel of fortune, and this isn't that you know they're not spinning the wheel, getting bankrupt and calling you know buying a vow. The wheel of fortune was a very specific concept, English mostly
0: by or the French mostly by consonants.
1: That's probably true. <laughs> That's also a really good joke. Yeah, it is. But this Wheel of Fortune is more fate-related. It's the idea that if someone's on the top of history, they're winning and they have God's favor. Because when people in this time had a lot of just bad things happen to them randomly and you just have to kind of say, okay, who up there doesn't like me? Yeah. Well, when someone's at the top and they're, they're, their empire is winning and they got a good king and then the next king is a bad king and the next king is a bad king, the wheel starts to turn. And then whoever was at the top is now moving toward the bottom and whoever's at the bottom starts to move toward the top. And you can see that flow of history. Yeah, and the English have been sitting at the top of that wheel for a while now. Exactly, and the French have been at the bottom and King, you know, Dauphine Charles is saying, I'm at the bottom, I don't think I'm ever going to get back up the top, I don't think I have divine favor. And Joan tells him, yes you do, I have been sent to show you that you have divine favor. I will go and free the city of Orleans from siege. And then you will go to Reims and you will be crowned king. I will make sure that happens if you give me the opportunity. This is still one of the things I don't fully understand. He says yes. Now, they make her go through some stuff first, okay? So remember, Orleans is still in, under siege. It's being shot at by cannons. The people are starving inside. And they wait. And they try to prove through an ecclesiastical court that Joan is as faultless as she is, that she is telling the truth, that her voices come from God. They send her to Poitiers, where there's a a church court, and they interview her. They interrogate her. They ask her all sorts of winding arguments. They go to... Dom Rami somehow, and they find a way to like interview her family and they interview her, the people who came with her and they try to figure out, is she the way she is? Because she is so insistent. She is so forthright and focused on what she wants. We're going to go fight the English. We're going to kill the English. We're going to chase them out of France. You will be king and God says it will be so. And they're like, okay, if you are this serious, we have to prove that you are and that you're not just some devil in disguise.
0: Yeah, I'm sure at this point everyone's still superstitious enough to go if she is sent by God, we cannot lose, but also she could be sent here to lead us into ruin like false prophet status.
1: Exactly. Interesting. This court doesn't say that for sure her voices come from God, but they say they cannot say that they don't. Basically it's the, the most tacit, passive tacit, tacit endorsement, tacit endorsement I love of it. all time.
0: Good. I mean good on good on Dolphin Charlie for doing his due diligence. And Think about what does he have to lose? Yeah, that's the real thing here. It's <laughs> like,
1: dude is in like free fall. A part of the reason they're losing these battles is because they keep retreating, they keep they keep losing faith. A lot of medi- a lot of medieval battles is about which side pushed last and caused the other side to break and run. Yeah, because there's very few casualties in many cases until some side turns and runs. Well, when the ecclesiastical court gives her. A-OK, okay. she is given armor, she's given horsemanship training, she's given a banner and a standard bearer. And in medieval battles, the person you know, leads the charge with a giant flag. Right. And they begin to introduce her to the few people that are in charge, the few men in charge. And here are the men that are in charge of the French military at this point. There's a man by the name of the Bastard of Orleans. He is the senior most French noble on the French side, still alive. And he is Duke Louis' bastard son.
0: You know you're in a bad state of things when the senior most nobility with the best claim in the region is a bastard.
1: But you know how Duke Louis had that statesmanship ability, that charm, that intelligence? So does he. It very much passed to his son. And his son is all intents and purposes, the same level of sonship as the other sons. As, as most people left in this world. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um,
0: Yeah, people are like, yeah, but you're a bastard. And he's
1: like, really? Yeah. You want you want to tug at that string? And he's pretty much been their main military leader um, because of his role and his success. Um, and his illegitimate brothers, or sorry, his legitimate brothers, his half-brothers are all in England still. They're still, right. still captured. Um, There's another man named the Duke of Alençon. He's one of the highest ranking people, but the only reason why he didn't die at Agincourt is he was too young. His father was killed at Agincourt. So he's a young, young man. He's there. Um, And there's also this man named Lachir. It's spelled hire, and it means he was a hired hand. He is a hired mercenary captain who was being paid well enough to stay on the French side. And he, (laughs) Mark Twain has fun with him because he's this like brutal, you know, whore-mongering, curses constantly, yells and just beats people up all the time. And the men who fight with them are excellent soldiers but are terrible men. And Joan tames them. And this actually happened. She wouldn't allow any women in their camp unless they were married. She wouldn't let them allow them to swear. She made them go to mass every day. So this is the kind of woman she is. She's not letting them do that because she was like, Chist. your job is to fight the English and kill the English. And I'm not letting you get distracted, because if God's going to be on our side, you're going to do the right things a good Catholic does. Which is kill the English. Which in this case, it's kill the Scotland. English. Scotland! <laughs> <laughs> she is able to sway these men that she's the real deal, and they buy into her story. Why isn't there a good movie of this? There, there are. Are there? Why isn't there okay, currently? There in? are movies of this. Right.
0: That's, that's my point. This could be the best movie I guess. I guess this is basically just Mulan, but
1: still. <laughs> yeah, since there are serious similarities, uh, the army is mustard, and they move up to Orleans. Notice I've stopped saying Orleans. I'm just going to say Orleans from now on. Really, and the army is Dijon mustard the,
0: because France. I Think
1: we're near the Dijon region? Yes.
0: I'm so proud that that joke works geographically.
1: <laughs> it may or may not. I, I don't have. I know a lot of French regions. I don't have them all memorized. Um, One of the first things that happens, actually, as far as we can tell, according to Twain, Joan does this, but according to Castor, Joan doesn't. It's one of the few places where they don't match. There's a fortress that the English had made on the eastern side of Orleans called um, Saint-Loup, and um, that one had already fallen. So the the French army, whether Joan did it or not, was already starting to get some foothold in success. And the siege had been going on for a long time, and Joan says, I will have it ended in four days. And they have to wait a couple days because of, like, feast days and um, holy holidays and things. And they gather their forces. They just wait a couple, two days. On the third day, they attack what's called um, Le Augustin, the Augustine Mar- Monastery, which was turned into a fortress. And that's connected to, by a fortified bridge called a boulevard. The original name of a boulevard is a kind of rampart, a heavily fortified, turreted bridge, to something called La tu- um, Tourelle or Tourelle depending on how the L is pronounced in French. And that's a serious fortress on the side of the river that's connected by a blown-up bridge to the island, which blows blown-up bridge again to Orleans. So there's fortresses with these roads containing them.
0: They love their fortresses.
1: And the first one you have to capture is the Augustine Fortress. And it takes all day and lots of cannons firing and constant attack, attack, attack. But Joan, you know, is... At the front of the army, she's standing in the ditch around the castle, and there's stakes in the ditch, and they're throwing, shooting crossbow bolts at her, and chucking rocks, and throwing hot oil, and she's just standing there calling out, let's attack, let's go. Um, she had already sent a, like, uh, dictated letter, because she was illiterate, to the English saying, if you don't leave, I will you know, kill all of you, and I'll throw you into the sea, and she sent letter, letter She letter. For she is illiterate. No, she is illiterate. I these that she sent. She dictated the oh. letter. She is a oh, okay. She had sent this letter and she had said, "You know, if you don't leave, I will kill you and I'll send you to the sea and you will be kicked out of France and you know, God hates you and everything." And it's this long, winding, circuitous letter because she was just like rambling as a she said it. Giant rainbow signs that say "God hates the English." And before she attacks this, um, before she attacks this Augustine, she even had them shoot with an arrow a letter in, and they basically just don't respond, and they even are cursing at her as they're attacking, but she's in there at the forefront of this battle, waving her banner, and it takes all day, but they take out the English garrison and they take this first fortress. It's the first real success to maybe lift the siege. Remember, this is only one of, like, seven or eight fortresses.
0: The princess is in another castle.
1: Now they have to get through the boulevard, and they have to get to that main fortress where the main forces with the actual garrison commander and his big... um, contingent well fed well supplied but the english now have the the siege sieged so there's there's like a double ring so that there's the other fortresses are out on the west and they're all waiting to see what happens but the next day they attack again and in this battle They're firing artillery into the castle for a while, hopefully to break it apart and hurt the. And these are true cannons at this point. They keep rushing into the moat. And to get across these moats, they have to throw wood into the moat and make a pile and then run across these piles of wood. And that makes them major targets. And they manage to do that. They manage to put scaling ladders up to this Terrell fortress. And Joan is hit by a crossbow bolt and she's wounded between the neck and the shoulder. And she collapses. And everyone starts to falter. The French army and their leaders are like, Should we keep going? And they all start to pull back and the English start to feel like they're gonna win. But then Joan gets up and just keeps saying, Let's go. You know, just screaming at the top of her lungs, having your standard bearer wave the flag. And the the French are like, This woman is from God. She this tiny woman in armor is our savior. Mm-hmm. And they just charge all at once, and they get the momentum. The English temporarily break, and once you temporarily break, you're done. Right. The French storm into the garrison, slaughter everybody, multiple guys, including the leader of the, fr- of the English army. He falls backwards into the water, and they drown in the water. At the same time that that's happening— because they can't retreat any further. The people, the soldiers and the carpenters from Orleans are rebuilding the bridge. <laughs> and apparently, like it's even written in the sources, like they're really good carpenters because they're able to build, as this battle is happening in a space of a couple of hours, a fully functioning wooden bridge across these the set of river. This
0: is insanity.
1: The English are all killed or ransomed. Basically, if you are important enough, you get ransom. If you're not, you get killed. And by sundown, the French are in the city of Orleans, and they have raised the siege. The English are still there. The siege has been raised. And now to give you a little bit of Twain and how he describes this, because we don't really have real sources on this, but this is how he envisioned it. And this is from the perspective of the narrator of Twain's book. Twain invented a companion Mm -hmm. to Joan of Arc. Oh, cool. And then it's the story that he is telling his his grandchildren when he's a eighty year old man, so it's him recollecting yeah. Joan, and so this is how he this this fake guy who was Joan's companion writes the story. When we arrived in Orleans, well, there is no describing that. Why those acres of people that we plowed through shed tears enough to raise the river? There was not a face in the glare of those fires that hadn't tears streaming down it. And if Joan's feet had not been protected by iron, they would have kissed them off. Welcome, welcome to the maid of Orleans. That was the cry. I heard it a hundred thousand times. No other girl in all history has ever reached such a summit of glory as Joan of Arc reached that day. She he is wor-
0: really loves Joan of Arc.
1: And in this point, these people love her too. Right. She is worshipped. They do all sorts of semi-pagan things of worship, like they drip wax on her and she has they have her kiss them and kiss their children to give them a blessing. This shows he up later chased. as well. And they just true, truly think that she is just the the savior. The next day though they have to confront the fact that the main English army is still in all those other fortresses. So they go out to meet them, and the English line up, the French line up the next day, but Joan, for pretty much the only time, says, wait, they're going to retreat. And the English eventually turn around and retreat, and they burn all their fortresses as they retreat. Instead of trying to fight, they felt they were overextended. Their leaders just decide to pull back. And wait for reinforcements because again they have half of France on their side.
0: Right. Now Yeah, if, if they didn't if the French didn't think Joan was amazing before this, now she's like, just hold on. The English are going to leave. And they just go. And again and again. That's crazy.
1: She's right. With Joan's victories lifting the siege, there is now clear momentum on the side of the French. The first things that they do is move north and begin to to capture fortresses north of the river and try to gain a foothold in English and Burgundian territory. At this point, they're mostly fighting the English. The Burgundians are just not actively fighting on either side, which is mostly what the English want. Attacking one of these other fortresses, and there's only three that they managed to attack, Joan receives a second wound in a similar vein as the first one and again rises and fights on.
0: Do we know that these things are happening? We know
1: that she did have these wounds, yeah. This is the
0: most insane story.
1: And it continues because while the French are sieging the third of the castles north of the Loire, the English with a new contingent of soldiers, and they're under um, the Duke of Bedford, and there's an Earl Talbot, Earl Falstoy, and there's these different high-ranking English men because their army wasn't decapitated. By the way, the guy who's leading the primary English forces, the Duke of Bedford. I can actually trace my lineage to him. My grandma's maiden name was... Her, her mother's maiden name was Bedford, so there we go. Yay, I'm mild to English and not at all part of the story, but I figured I'd throw that in. Mark and remove it later.
0: No, we're going to leave all of that in, uh, mostly because I find it amazing that you can, like, trace your lineage back to English nobility when I am the most English person that we have in our like social circle based on the most English last names running up my family tree.
1: The most frustrating thing is that this Duke of Bedford, yeah, he's a, he's related to John of Gaunt. That's the male line he comes from. And we all know that oh, John of yeah. Gaunt was great. He was a good dude. Just awesome. A
0: plus, Yeah. swell AF.
1: Yep. So with that <laughs> aside, while the French are hold on,
0: do we need to lift the thing about uh, was it your mother's maiden name or your grandmother's maiden name? Grandmother's. Okay, good because I was I was like I was like hold on, isn't that a security question?
1: No, no, no. <laughs> no. My mom's Irish, it's different. Um, it's my dad's mother's mother. That's oh, how okay. distant we go. Yeah. While sieging that third castle, the the English show up with a large army and there's a little bit of posturing as the armies try to line up. Apparently, though, the English commander was trying to produce another Agincourt-like battle. He has lots of archers. Most of these battles, the English don't have that many knights or men-at-arms. They're actually using longbowmen because that's what their best weapon is. These well-trained but uh, not noble soldiers, that's a much better way of fighting in this time period, you don't need these incredibly um, expensive soldiers. You get these rather well-to-do farmers. Welsh and English longbowmen are just standalone farmers. They're called the yeomen. They have their own farm. They have enough time and effort to train. They're usually on the Welsh or English marches, which used to fight a lot, but have since been pacified. And they're great soldiers. And they, as long as you pay them well and treat them terribly but well for the time period... Right, they'll fight. So the same as Agincourt, the oh, English. So
0: is this the big pivot in history from uh, sending the nobility to kill each other to going to having the nobility send the poor to kill each other?
1: There's, it's not the poor. It's like sending the middle class. It's a okay. little different because they're the equivalent that middle class doesn't exist yet, but they're the closest you get. Okay. Men who own their own farm. These are freemen, and that's that's different from a peasant, a serf, which most people were. These are that in between. Status. Okay. They try to set up the same basic formation that had worked for the English so many times and annihilated the French so many times, which is the archers are massed are either on the outside or in front of the, the men at arms and knights. And there's um, sharpened stakes in front of them at kind of a, about a 45 degree angle, which are meant to impale the horses. Generally, as well, the French would try to screen their army in some way with a natural feature whether put them up on a hill, behind a bunch of mud, behind a river, or in this case, behind a thicket of woods. And the idea is if the French can be invisible, they can shoot their arrows up and over into where they know that the French are. The problem is, apparently the, the English captains had been indecisive or micromanaging their troops, and they were moving them around too much. And in the process, they stirred up wildlife, and they stirred up a lone stag, and the French don't exactly know where the English are yet. They're lined up waiting to try to figure out where they are so they can charge them. And this is sounding exactly like Agincourt, where as soon as the French started to attack, the English just poured arrows on them and annihilated them. But the problem is, in the movement of the English, that stag jumps out of nowhere and startles a bunch of the archers, and they cry out. The French go there, there, and they charge into the archers.
0: Before the archers have time to set up their pikes and all that stuff. Before the archers have time
1: to set up, and they, that first charge is only a tiny group of the French army, and it utterly routes the English to such an extent that Joan of Arc doesn't even really play a part in this battle. She's chasing her own army. Lahir is the guy who attacks, the mercenary guy. She chases her own army because she's so far behind them because they attack so quickly and annihilate. The English.
0: You gotta love stories where the English get just, just beat down in a military battle because the other team isn't playing by the rules. Oh, like, exactly. The English are like, not fair. We didn't say go. We didn't have time to set up yet. <laughs> it's like, flash forward to like the Revolutionary War in America, where they're like, you're not doing the thing where you line up in front of us and shoot and shoot at each other. You're doing stuff where you hide in the trees. It's not fair. You're not warring right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking my monarchy and I'm going home.
1: That's the best summary of the Revolutionary War (laughs) in an episode of Joan of Arc I have ever heard. That implies I've heard other versions of that. It stands to reason. I'm sure Mark Twain did something. Of course. This battle is called the Battle of Patay. And it's generally considered an Agincourt in reverse, even though obviously there's far less noble death on the side of the English. They do lose some of their soldiers, but most of their leadership actually survives. Um, it's what's damaging to the English is their archers are killed. They lose a giant portion of their archery. Um, and the momentum continues to shift in the favor of the French. You can see the Frenchers, they're moving forward, they're moving forward, they're able to win these victories. They're finally tasting success when for years, even a decade, they've been failing repeatedly and infighting, Far more. And when you're in fighting, there is no such thing as a success. Either, there's a French person losing when it's a civil war, period. Right. Now there's a French side that has considered themselves the French, especially since the Burgundians in the French mind are no longer French. They're false French. There's now a French side with victories. What follows is very frustrating for Mark Twain, it's very frustrating for Joan of Arc. It's six weeks of indecision. Because now that there's some success, and with the temerity of the French court and the defensive nature of medieval warfare, constant attack often ends in disaster. Just
0: ask the English over the last several weeks.
1: Exactly. They're afraid that they're going to overextend themselves. Why don't we wait? Let's get a truce. Let's renegotiate. Let's get Burgundy on our side. And that's one thing that's going on right now is the French know that they can get the Duke of Burgundy to potentially switch sides. And if they can get him to actually stay on their side, they'll win. But it's the fact that a giant, really wealthy portion of France is actively fighting against them or at other times very, very neutral Neither one of those things is benefiting them at all. But the problem is the Duke of Burgundy has no desire to help the French because they murdered his dad. He hates them. He's smart enough and he's ruthless enough to allow for the politics to go the way they need to go. And he is willing to make peace treaties with them. He's willing to not actively fight with them. But in the end, he's benefiting from French defeats he is still actively playing part in Paris and supporting his role as a protector of the new French king, in his mind, Henry VI. He has still spread what his father had spread, which is these ideas that France needs to devolve a little bit, not be so agricultural, not so centralized, not so noble. Because remember, most of his wealth that's not French is coming out of what is now belgium and holland which is cities and merchants and that's his close tie to the english is its economic he can't abandon the english because if he does he's bankrupting himself he doesn't he's french in sympathy in a manner kind of but not in others and you get this he's a fascinating man philip of burgundy Just like John of Burgundy, his father, was because they are so pulled in different directions and consistently the successful person. That's not common in history for someone to be yanked in so many different ways and have all sorts of conflicts of interest going on. There's multiple times where the Duke of Burgundy is having peace negotiations with both sides at the same time and he's signing peace treaties that actively conflict. And then when both sides... Figure out, they get mad at him, and he's goes back to being neutral.
0: Is Burgundy is Burgundy the uh, the guy in Three's company? I feel like he might be.
1: There's almost a little menage a trois going on yeah, there. Yeah.
0: It's like the oh man, I accidentally invited two different dates to this dance, and constantly
1: like jumping back and forth. So because of the fact that. And even Joan knows this, and Joan is making these arguments too. They, if they don't get Burgundy, they're not going to win. It doesn't matter. The French aren't going to win. They can't kick the English out without that support. There's a little bit of indecision, but Joan is still saying it doesn't matter. We'll get him because we're still succeeding. We can convince him through our victories instead of trying to make a peace treaty with him. That's not going to work.
0: Yeah, he clearly is going to go where the tide is. And if you, can, if you can keep the English on their heels enough, he's going to be like, oh, well, I don't want to be on the side of the, the, the obvious losers. So yeah, Team team Real France right now. Yeah. And you really only need Team Real France for long enough to get the English all the way out of France. Or the
1: bankrupt English. It's worked yeah. multiple times already. Right. So Joan, with the support of the one of the few young noblemen, the Duke of Alençon, are just aggressively pushing to attack. And what Joan starts to say is she starts to give out more prophecies. And this next prophecy is that um, they need to push to the city of Reims, which is the capital of, not capital, but it's a really important city in Burgundy-controlled territory, and there's an archbishopric there, which is the traditional coronation location of French kings.
0: Yeah, so we still haven't... uh... We still haven't actually or uh, coronated uh, Dolphin Louis yet, or Dolphin was it Dolphin Charlie? Yeah, Dolphin Charles. You're calling him the Dolphin Charlie.
1: Charles, Charles in French. Yeah, I'm going with Dolphin yeah, Charlie. Dolphin Charlie works for me. But the problem is, it's a good children's book. Chrem is really far away, and it's far farther. It's twice as far as Paris, even. So you got Paris, the capital. If you take Paris, you kind of win, you, and then. She's saying, no, we're going to go to REM because what Joan and some of her followers are starting to understand, if we want to think about this in a less divine way, is the propaganda victory on the moral momentum that they have gained is far more important to swaying the battle, turning the tide of the war. And she says, not only are we going to go to REM, we're going to go on a post. She says, I will get us there without fighting a battle. Everyone's like, well, sure. At this point, why (laughs) not?
0: Yeah, everyone at this point is going like, yeah, makes sense.
1: And they do. They arrive at Rem, almost unopposed. The only city that stands its ground a little bit is the city of Troyes, Troy, that had been the place where the treaty was signed, that disinherited Dauphine Charles. She marches into Burgundian lands, and the Burgundians, sensing the momentum, all of those cities, which are semi-independent, remember, garrisons and things, technically French, but kind of not French because they're in the Burgundian lands, they all just switch sides on the way. It helps that there is a religious movement run by a guy named Brother Charles who is the male version of Joan of Arc, just less war. It's like inverting the gender roles in this case. Um, This brother Charles actively preaches for Joan of Arc and ends up becoming one of her companions in swaying the common people. So there's this like grassroots movement that bubbles up underneath her as she moves through enemy territory and they just all switch sides. They get to Rem and Charles is crowned. And now he has a big propaganda victory because Henry VI is like an eight-year-old boy and is still not crowned. His realm has been run by his uncles very similarly to the way Charles V's realm was run by his uncles, and they're starting to fight each other, and they're starting to bicker. And what's worse is remember who Henry VI is related to. Remember who his mother is. His mother is Catherine of Valois, Charles V's daughter. Charles V, the mad's daughter.
0: Mm, okay. Now, People tra- aren't super stoked on that. Now,
1: let's do a little family tree here, and we can follow a certain gene. We're, we're going to start with Charles V, the mad king. His mother was famously mentally unstable, and her father was also famously mentally unstable, the Duke of Bourbon. You can watch the mentally unstable gene trace through the family because Charles' younger brother isn't. He got the traits from their father, the great king, Charles, the, uh, the previous Charles. Charles VI, I'm sorry. Charles VI, the, the mad king. It's Charles V. Charles VI, yeah. the, the mad king. Charles V was brilliant statesman, but his wife was loony. And that gene passed down to one of their two sons. And then that mad king of all of his kids... Unfortunately, his daughter had the gene too. She doesn't seem to show it. She actually seemed to be very much uh, a carrier. And then she passes into her son. So her son, Henry VI, has that same wide-eyed, spacey gaze that her father had. So he took after his grandfather. So Henry VI, even at eight years old, was showing signs of mental instability.
0: So, so France is kind of going like, God, do we really want to take that role of the monarchy dice again?
1: At this point, he's so young, they can't determine it. And it's like, there's been enough of a political snowball effect that he's going to be king of France. Like, that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But this other group of French are saying, no, that's not going to happen. But they have lost that battle. They managed to, the English do, crown in their own ceremony a little bit later, Henry VI. He is king of France by title for the rest of his life. And in fact the kings of Fran- the kings of england will maintain the title king of france for hundreds of years into the future long after they no longer have any real claim to the title that that sounds about as english as you can get again though after charles is crowned he just turns and leaves and goes right back south of the loire and hides out <sighs> he waffles again and now the peace talks have a little bit more of a bite to them cuz now they're saying, "Hey, can we Burgundy come to our side? Like stay on our side." Yeah. And he's still very indecisive. He's not going to not going to support them. He just doesn't they they have a momentum, but they don't they don't have a victory, a true victory yet. So what's left for the French is they need to try to take Paris. The problem is Paris isn't Orléans. Paris is a multi circuited city there are walls on walls on walls it looks more like a dartboard than it does a simple city wall because the city has been expanded and every time the city expanded they walled it again and each of those different sets of walls is surrounded by various fortresses at key points and there's fortresses and there's spiked moats with you know openings for hot oil and every evil thing you can imagine At this point, the same argument comes to play. Joan keeps saying, my voices say that we will be victorious. We are going to win. We are going to kick the English out. This will be another victory for us. And they're like, all right, you haven't been wrong yet. And they attack Paris. The numbers are not great on the side of the French. The English and Burgundians are holed up in the city. And this city had been strongly in favor of the Burgundian side for a long time, ever since the Duke of Burgundy, John the Fearless, had actively swayed the University of Paris and all the theologians onto his side by defending their rights. He defended the rights of the rich merchants and the the classes that have all the wealth and all the influence. The wealthy and the religious. He's strong move. He was smart. He just simply was smart. And the city is given another demanding letter by Joan. And they literally throw it back at her and cursing at her. And they're like, no, we're not going to throw the city apart. We're not going to let you conquer us. You are from the devil. All of your victories are just proof that you're from the devil because you're attacking on days that you shouldn't be attacking. These are feast days. You're a woman wearing men's clothing. You're hearing voices that are speaking to you in French. God doesn't speak in French. He speaks in English. He speaks in English. That's exactly the logic. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he should speak in Latin. Who knows, you know? No, it's English. It's English. I mean, there is a famous quote, you know, we don't know what language God speaks, but if he does, it's English. That's a quote from the 19th century when they were conquering the world. Yep.
0: That That sounds exactly right.
1: The attack on Paris opens with a massive artillery barrage. At this point, it's true cannons just firing and firing into Paris. And and that is a way to get a fortress to eventually succumb. But Paris is a much, much stronger fortress. It's one of the biggest, most powerful cities on the planet at this time. And the artillery barrage doesn't really seem to do much. And so they decide to attack anyway and just try to use that force of will to get into the city, even get a foothold in the city. The, The battle can hopefully end in your favor. So another quote from Castor about how that battle goes. As the sun dipped below the horizon after a day of battling, Joan called urgently to the unseen enemy in the fortifications above. "Surrender to us quickly in the name of Jesus, for if you do not surrender before nightfall, we will come in there by force whether you like it or not, and you will be and you will all be put to death without mercy." "Shall we, you bloody tart?" came the reply. Oof and a crossbow bolt ripped through her thigh. As she staggered, another arrow pinned the foot of her standard bearer to the ground beside her. When he lifted his visor so that he could see to free himself, a third shot split his skull between his eyes. He died where he fell. Darkness was coming. Joan was losing blood, but she shouted till she was hoarse. Her exhausted soldiers moved forward, onward to the attack. At Orléans and Jago, she had been hurt, only to rise again her resilience assigned to her troops that God would give them victory. Paris was next, of that there could be no doubt. And then, over the cannon blasts, she heard the sounding of the retreat. She did not stop insisting that the city could be won as she was dragged from the ditch and carried to safety. Only when the tail of the Armagnac army disappeared into the night did the Parisian guns stutter stutter at last into silence. The next day, Joan wakes up and demands even though she's sick and wounded, to attack again. Only then does she learn it wasn't a temporary retreat. It was a full-scale withdrawal from the city and surroundings of Paris. The momentum is gone. What's worse is that the active campaigning season is starting to come to a close as well. Remember, Joan shows up in around January and makes makes her trip to the king. She's there. In the middle of winter, she raises the siege of Orleans in May. And the Battle of Pate is um, later on in June. And then she's attacking Paris in July. So they're running out of time to actively fight. so you can't really fight from about October on. You have to start battling. and it's, You can really have war from like May to October, about six months of the year.
0: It's like wedding season.
1: Exactly. So exactly. Exact same thing. But the problem now for Joan is she's failed. She didn't succeed. The voices said she'd win. She said she'd win. And they didn't take Paris. What is the French king to do with her? What do you do with a prophetess who has failed at their prophecy?
0: You mess up one time. That's the crazy thing about this story, because you can see where the where this where this goes, and if you if you're listening, you probably know enough to know how the story of Joan of Arc ends. But it's just like just to take kind of take a step out of time for a second. It's so wild to be like this 16 year old girl, pre- like basically predicted the future to a garrison near her home all these like months ago or whatever, and then has just been right and has led a like directionless monarchy and and like, like directionless military through like unexpected victory after victory. Marched unopposed into enemy territory to crown the king in a way, in the exactly that she promised. He wouldn't even have a crown right now if not for her. And then they like, they march on the most fortified city on the continent, basically. It is. And her her military retreats against her orders. And now it's like, what do you do with her? She sucks at this now, based on the one thing. I, I, guess, I guess we will never win again. It's like
1: they didn't even want to attack the city in the first place. But she has that will. She has the success. And then when it didn't succeed, they're like, oh, good, we can stop attacking constantly and go back to being, to be fair, cowards. And just sit there on the defensive and try to work out a peace treaty with the Burgundians. Come on, France. Don't play into this stereotype. What they end up using Joan for for the rest of the year is they send her to... Kindling. Spoiler alert. <laughs> That's not this year. <laughs> they sent her to a place called La Clarete, the, like the clear place. And there's a mercenary guy camped out there who had kidnapped a favorite of the king and um, he was one of those nominally Burgundians who was basically his own lord in a little area that's now in Burgundian control. And after they had marched the rems, they had taken a big chunk of land back for, uh, for France, and he's basically a thorn in their side there. And so she's sent to, you know, get his submission. All right, all right, you can help us in that way. She's not happy about it, but she, she goes and actively waves her banner and fails. They take a lot of that guy's land, that mercenary leader's land. And at La Clarete, the guns fire ceaselessly for about a month at that fortress. And by December, freezing and starving, they retreat. And she she fails at that. She tries her hand at writing about various heretical groups, such as the Hussites, an early Protestant-like group that was popping up at this point writing about how they need to return to the real faith and things like that. So she she's learning how to write, which is cool. But you can tell that peacetime Joan is not a happy Joan. And she is given certain benefits by the king. She is rewarded. But you can tell that these rewards are ways to try to get her to go away. That's the way I've read them, is she and her entire family, including the women, are ennobled, she's not been she's not you know duchess joan of arc but she's now dame joan of arc she had always called herself joan the maid so part of her role um joan la pourcel was that she is this like lowest of the low servant of god that is given this you know the meek become the rulers of the earth kind of position and now she's ennobled and it's kind of like Cool. She she likes it. She's happy that her brothers and her father and her mother and her sisters are all not of them. What she noble. wanted for herself, but it's not really what she wants for herself. How old is she at this point? Uh nineteen. Okay. And she's still a young woman. She's got her whole life ahead of her, and she's a noble. Domremy is her hometown. Is uh, exempt from all taxes, and it does maintain its exemption until like the Revol- Revolutionary War because it's her hometown, Wow! there's different things that the king does to reward her, but she doesn't care. She has a job. She has a mission from God himself through his saints. Saints Catherine, Margaret, the arch um, angel of Michael. These are much higher figures in her mind that are calling her to achieve this goal. And she's not allowed to do it. She's being prevented. Politically, what's going on behind the scenes is there is a three-way truce by the church. The church starts to say, okay, and the church is this all throughout the Middle Ages. The church is like the only thing that keeps people from truly slaughtering everybody. Stop fighting and just pause for a while, a temporary like six-month truce. During that period, that's when Henry VI is crowned. And okay. there's constant little infighting and tension, but <clears throat> there is at least a pause. When that next season arrives and that truce ends, there's an immediate scramble to take certain territories that either didn't quite follow along with the truce, because the truce exchanged some fortresses and garrisons and things, or there had been little mini battles throughout the truce, and now they want to like solve the problem. So warfare starts immediately. So in May of 1430, there's a city called Compiègne, and that city was supposed to have switched back to the Burgundians, but it had not wanted to brother richard had preached there there had been that grassroots movement and the people said we are we are going to go on the side with joan of arc and god and her mission and we want to be back to being french which is kind of backwards because the the french party had harassed these people just a generation before and had those flares from the beginning of our episode had gone through there so this is a this is a good sign for the french this is a switch and this is a very similar city like the city of um, Orleans. It's, it's now sieged by the Burgundians who show up with English support, but mostly it's Burgundian troops this time. And they, this time, the Burgundians are sieging from the north, and the French you know, are supporting on the south. And the way the city works is on the River Wasse, and the city's on the sou- southern bank, and there's a fortified bridge with a little like, foothold on the, the north bank of the river where there's a, a wall surrounding a tiny town. And then there's the largest city on the, the southern part of the, the river. And the Burgundians are outside that north side. Joan leads out a charge into the Burgundian and English lines and starts to push them back, 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 trying to get them away from the city and trying to wrap them and make them go to a battle. But for some reason they're starting to retreat and they're, they're giving ground. And what Joan Joan's side is? No, the Burgundians are. because Joan's side is pushing, pushing, yeah. pushing. And what Joan doesn't realize, and her other captains and things, is that as they're retreating, is they're causing the French to overextend themselves. The city walls are open so that the French can retreat if they have to, but the problem is a force led by the English and Burgundians comes in from the side and flanks and surrounds the vanguard where Joan is located, of the French force. The French force now fighting, like in a V-shape, fighting two separate armies, is in danger of having their retreat cut off. And they start to flee. Because they know if that happens, they're all going to die. Right. So they manage to flee, and the small group that was at the front of the French battle, including Joan herself, they are surrounded. And Joan is captured by an archer of the Duke of Luxembourg, one of the main scions of the duke of burgundy
0: the real thorn in joan of arc's side throughout her entire life are archers
1: yes constantly she keeps getting shot by them every battle
0: every battle
1: joan is now captured and she is in the control of the duke of luxembourg and she's a trophy and she spends the next six or so months in a burgundian jail while everyone tries to figure out what to do with her because remember the burgundians don't just want to hand her to the English. They want to get value from her. They need to know what they should do. And she's their prisoner of war. Should they ransom her to the French? Well, they're going to make her so expensive it's impossible. Right. Are they going to ransom her for political concessions? Are they going to give her to the English? Because the English are going to kill her. The French apparently try to retrieve her, but they, the the Burgundians, take her so far deep into Burgundian territory, there's no chance. Joan throughout. They they know what they've got. They know what they have, yeah. And the the at this point Joan is kept in a variety of dungeons because she keeps trying to escape. She tries to escape at least three times, including one time jumping out of a tower. Uh, And it's one of those where we're not sure if it was an escape or a suicide attempt. Mm. It's like a seventy foot drop. She jumped from like the sixth or seventh story of a building. Wow. And she only survives because it was a. She landed in a dry moat, which was soggy ground. She just hits a soggy earth, like kind of like mud, and that saves her. And she is badly injured from this. And they move her to a much, much harsher, harder to escape from dungeon. And through some political machinations, she is ransomed to the English.
0: That's not what you want.
1: Whenever you read a story about Joan of Arc, about a third or half of the book is about her trial. And I don't mean to bias this, but I find the trial of Joan of Arc excruciatingly repetitive. As trials often are. This one's even worse than that, though. The reason I say that is because it's trials plural. Each one more repetitive and inconclusive than the last. The simple overarching aspect to this is... The bishop that the English side, and this is a Frenchman who is under the control of the English, so he's an English-supporting Frenchman in an English-supporting area that's been English-controlled for a very long time. So these so are— not
0: Burgundian, but English-leaning actual French. Yeah.
1: This is like Normandy, where the, the the lines and allegiances are super confused, but these are French-speaking English-backed people. They're now saying the English are our people now. <laughs>
0: Another one of those, another one of those regions of France that you're just like, you don't want to be there when wars
1: are happening. No, no, many, many, many times. No, <laughs> there's
0: there's a few of those in France in this story alone.
1: Mm-hmm. So this guy is um, Bishop Gauchon, and he is trying to become the Archbishop of Rouen, which is the main city in Normandy, and it's, it's the true, uh, like. It's like the top job for a bishop. And he's actually a bishop without a C because he, in uh, Joan's conquests, the area that he was bishop of was taken. So he's a bishop that doesn't actually have, he's no, no bishopric. Uh, as a result, he's pretty aggressively against Joan. And he is described by in Mark Twain's book as this like giant flabby man who smells bad and has three chins and just, just makes him look like the worst person of all time. And we don't know. He, he could have been anything. Really, we don't know what he looked like. But he is a, you know, educated man. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get Joan to admit in a wide variety of ways that her voices do not come from God. Basically, they can find fault in her her herself and her morality, or they can find fault in the actions she did and tie those to what her voices said then they can find a way to get her to what's called abjure, that is surrender her rights and be more or less confined to a monastery forever, put into church jail is <laughs> the best way I can think church of it. Church jail, aka
0: children's ministry.
1: <laughs> Don't at me. But what that will do is that will allow the English to flip the propaganda battle. All of these victories of your king, of your people, are from the devil. That's, that's their goal. And if it's,
0: it's to delegitimize all of her action in a way that like these cities that are being told, Hey, you're going to be Burgundian again. And they're like, no, 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 Team Joan. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. Joan admitted that she basically was from the devil. And then they'll be like, oh, okay. I guess, I guess Burgundy with peace then.
1: <laughs> exactly. The other flip side is if she doesn't have Jewish, doesn't sign a paper saying that she, you know, was a heretic. The church has no choice but to exile her is um, not the right word. Um, kick her out. I don't know how else to describe it. There's a special word for it. But banish her from the church, and then she'll be turned oh, oh, over uh, to the English uh, authorities.
0: Hold on. It's going to drive listeners crazy if we can't come up with the actual word. Excommunicate?
1: Excommunicate. If Joan doesn't abjure doesn't sign the paper that allows that says she's a heretic, the church will excommunicate and banish her. Remove their protection of her because she comes from the devil. Then they'll turn her over to the English, who will burn her at the stake. I mean, that sounds like a goal of theirs in all but one way that you slice it. (laughs) The most fascinating part about this trial is we have the full record of everything they said, written in French, which means we have Joan of Arc's actual words, verbatim. It's very rare in history that you have conversations written down verbatim from this time period particularly conversations of such an important and interesting figure. And Joan comes off very positively in these trials because it takes multiple trials because of her ability to defeat in the manner in which she answers the arguments of the bishops and the theologians and the priests who are asking questions. And these are the primary Teachers and professors at the University of Paris. These are the highest educated and smartest people that they have in the church, actively trying to get her to say things in the manner in which they ask questions, constantly doubling back on their questions, asking the questions in one way and then asking the questions again, but in a slightly different way to see she'll be inconsistent. Trying to get her to talk about her voices because the more they get her to talk about her voices, the more she'll likely reveal something that they can point at and say, that is the devil. And in many cases, she refuses absolutely to talk about her voices at all. And she'll just say, go to the next question. Another one. Another one. And she stands her ground, and she's defiant. And they'll ask, and they'll yell at her and tell her that eternal damnation will come to her. And she'll say, I believe that I have God on my side, and I don't care what you're saying. Ask another question. That kind of defiance against these guys. And they're she's alone. She has iron shackles on her. She's this tiny 19-year-old girl with these incredibly powerful men, all who's been shot her. by a
0: bunch of crossbows in a in a time period where like physical therapy is not around. So she she's had probably just pretty...
1: healed from jumping out of a tower.
0: Oh yeah, that too.
1: And yet she's defiant and she's so good at obfuscating these men that they have to continually make these really weak cases against her and then start to ask more and more questions about them. They Drawing smaller concentric circles. Drawing smaller concentric circles. They start with like 60 articles that are all not very supportive, and they go down to 12. They bring her um, a confessional, like a priest to confess to, because that's something that Catholics want to do every day at this time period, and kind of in general. And in the confession, there's people listening, trying to get her to say something. Eventually what it boils down to was the fact that she wore men's clothing becomes the big thing that she can't really argue against because biblically you don't do that. And it's, first of all, wasn't my idea. Second of all, it wasn't something I did. I did because I was defending my chastity. I'm out in the field with a bunch of strange men who are famous for running around raping. Mm -hmm. Pants, armored pants, are the best way for me to be a maid, a virgin. And all of these different times, she's constantly being checked. By the way, when they're like questioning her at Poitiers and questioning her here, they always are checking her virginity to make sure that she actually is and she has proven to be one. And that's part of the reason she did it. They say that a woman is not allowed to fight in war, and she says, "Well, I was called by God to fight in war. I think God outranks you. outranks you." Yeah, that's her argument. Also, the fact that the people had given her such admiration in Orleans and had doted on her in some semi-pagan ways, was thrown against her. Which, once again, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. That wasn't me. That was them. And she says, in her defense, she goes, merely I was getting the gratitude of people. I did not ask for it. I did not encourage it. She attacked on feast days and holy days, which, by the way, was like every day in the Middle Ages. So that was a weak argument, too. Right. And most importantly, the fact that her voices spoke French— didn't settle with people who thought the voices shouldn't be speaking French. But a combination of those different ideas and a pretty clearly kangaroo court.
0: Right, yeah, this is this is like getting a gangster on tax evasion.
1: Exactly. You end up with a situation where she starts to go through these trials and these same arguments and she's having to sit all day in the summer heat in then spend the night in the dungeon and she's being fed bad food and she starts to get weak and sick. And then they bring her outside and they basically pile up a bunch of sticks and they make a funeral pyre. And they walk her up to it and they say, one more time, you need to abjure or we're going to light you on fire right now because we have proven you to be a heretic. And dehydrated, sick, forced to stand in the hot sun for hours, she abjures and she signs her name. And that was to save her life, according to Gauchon mm. the bishop in charge. Now, Castor kind of says this as a legitimate thing. Like, he kind of wants her to still be alive so that they have the moral high ground. Right. Whereas Twain just says he's evil. And he won't, he's just trying to find a way to, get, to trick her into death. Yeah. We don't really know why, but what we do know is that they say you cannot wear men's clothing, and you're going to go into church jail and you are going to be removed from this and you are going to survive. Well, the next day when she kind of recovers her wits, she says, I didn't want to sign that, but I did sign that. And then she remains in jail for a while. And then all of a sudden she appears in men's clothes again because they had put her in women's clothes when they sent her to this jail. And she arrives a few days later, and she's wearing men's pants again. And again, there's conflicting stories. The English, of course, say she couldn't help but sin, so she relapsed. And therefore, the church absolves themselves of her and sends her to the English. And Joan's story was that she was in a dress, unprotected, in a prison surrounded by a bunch of lewd men, who stole her clothes. They had taken the dress out, and they'd only left pants in the room. Mm-hmm. And when she had to go to relieve herself, she had to put on those pants to go relieve herself, to go outside and be taken outside to relieve herself into like whatever the, the toilet was at the time. And Probably, probably what, a
0: drinking a drinking fountain of some kind. Yes.
1: <laughs> and they had then caught her with that trick. And she said it was because of her chastity, and they probably tricked her into it. She is then accused of of being a relapsed heretic. She's sent to the English and they burn her at the stake. And apparently, when they burned her at the stake, everyone felt bad about it. Like no one was super happy about it. And they even like had someone stand there in front of her holding a crucifix, not in a like burn witch, more of a you asked for this, you know, um, you know, this is to help you and hopefully get God up back on your side, that kind of stuff. They um a lot it's, of it's it's
0: it's like a very sincere version of may god have mercy on your soul. Yeah, there
1: was a lot of that, that. Like we 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 have seen that you are this kind of exceptional person, but we do believe you're from the devil. So we believe your faith is real, but you are being counseled improperly, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, we believe that you believe that you are that you were acting on God's behalf, comma JK, witch, it's the devil.
1: Comma, <laughs> burn witch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the outcome of Joan of Arc's short career, she spent more time in prison and on trial than she did in the field. This is two years of time, and she spent about 60-40, 60% of the time in prison, 40% of the time actually doing her, her glorious feats, is she clearly turns the tide of the war. The fact that Henry VI proves to be so mentally unstable and inept Um, does not help things for the English. The fact that the Burgundians actively switch to the French side only a couple years later, and once they do that, and they commit (laughs) because they know that the tide has turned, the English rather rapidly start to lose their ground. It takes about 20 more years until 1453. Joan is killed in 1431. And the war ends 22 years later in 1453 when the English are finally kicked out of France. Most of her lieutenants actually um, try to cause another civil war afterwards. The Bastard of Orleans and the Duke of son kind of fight each other a little bit. But uh, they all end up living most of their long lives and they help get Kingdom of France back. Charles is the king of France and it's his children that can you know, continue the French line. What's actually interesting, though, is how the French line continues. It's, it's all through Duke Louis of Orleans. Hmm. It's his family that once Charles the Seventh's family dies out within, like, two generations, all of the Dukes after that, all the, the family of the Duke of Orleans, uh, including his the guy who was stuck in England, all of their grandchildren become the kings of France. So I, that family actually kind of, That broken branch of the family manages to completely survive. It is a small world, especially when it's one family. Right, Right, yeah, two. Yeah. The chaos that happens because of the loss of the Hundred Years' War and the ineptitude of Henry VI causes the War of the Roses in England, which lasts for about 100 years, and ends up with Henry VIII becoming king. His father, Henry VII, becomes king, but you get the point. The failure of the English here, Causes a giant civil war that lasts for generations and annihilates their nobility. They all kill themselves. So what Joan does in this bizarre way is win France back for France. She achieved her goals, but she didn't do it in the way she said she would. She just said it was going to happen, and she implied even to the end that she would be saved, that she'd be the one that did it, that she would be that savior of France, and she does. Yet she fails. She fails. And then I think she does fit our Those Who Lost footnote's motto. So it's hard for me to truly put Joan of Arc into perspective. The sheer number of historical events and circumstances and people involved to allow Joan of Arc to happen is mind-blowing. And that might be the case with every historical event, the sheer number of threads of history that combine into one moment. But the the Joan of Arc story is unique and bizarre thread after unique and bizarre thread. The fact that a 19-year-old girl led the French army to turn the tide of the Hundred Years' War. What? What? So many little, tiny events. And to me, that's what produces interesting history. That's what produces interesting stories. Is someone that no one expected with thousands of things going on behind the scenes of history, not written down, allowing her to exist. The names of people like Yolande, who is likely the only reason why she ever happened, mostly forgotten. The fact that she... Lifted the siege and died is what she's remembered for. And yet her personality, which I've struggled to convey in this episode, read the Mark Twain book if you want to see it, her personality is unique in itself. Someone who we have on record just believing something so hard that they will themselves to it forever. And in the end, failing, but producing the success that they prophesied they would do in the first place. And with that, after 20 more years of grinding warfare, France is made whole again, and the Hundred Years' War comes to an end.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of footnotes to, uh, read either of the main sources we discussed in this episode. The, uh, the show notes will have links to both of them. Um, I really recommend that you go check out the Mark Twain one. I haven't read it, but it just sounds really interesting. So I'm going to say go, go, go read that one. Um, please check us out on Facebook and Instagram and the various socials. Those are the only two we have. Um, you can, uh, you can be a part of a conversation about these episodes on Facebook. You can get updates about the show coming out as well as just kind of some behind the scenes when we're filming and when we're, or I guess when we're recording and that kind of thing on Instagram. So if you want to know more about us when we're doing the show, that would be where I recommend that you take a look. And, uh, you know, if you've really enjoyed this, please, like, share it with a friend. Pick one person you think that would be into these kinds of uh footnotes of history, these kind of lesser, to- lesser told stories, and uh, send it their way. It would really, really help us out. So until next time.